The story is simple. A landowner needs help with his harvest. So he hires some laborers at sunrise, some more at nine, a few more at three. And then he's in the marketplace late in the afternoon with only one hour of sunlight left. He finds some laborers who had not been hired at all that day. The answer that they give as to why, they, uh, why they've not worked should have been reason enough for the landowner to pass them over. This is not the kind of worker you want to select. But astonishingly, he hires them. Even more startling is the fact that when it's time to pay his workers, he pays this last group a full day's wage for only one hour of work. Who does such a thing? We easily identify with the workers in line who have been there on the job all day. And when we hear that the people who've only worked one hour has, have received a denarius, then the expectation is our compensation will be more. More in proportion with the longer work, the, the longer hours we've worked. But they receive the same. So who can blame them for being disgruntled, if not outraged? What employer pays the same for one hour's work as for 12? It makes no sense economically and it offends what we consider to be right, fair, and acceptable. But this is no economic parable. It's a lesson about grace, something of God which cannot be calculated like a worker's wage. Grace is not about being first or last. It's not about counting. It is a gift from God not something we work for, earn, or deserve. Most gifts that come to us with strings attached, without strings attached, excuse me, are welcomed by us. But for some reason, this one is hard to receive. We're set up for this problem with grace in the conversation between the landowner and the workers hired at the end of the day. But the teaching moment comes when the comparing of wages is realized. It's as if we disapprove of God's love offered without discrimination. We feel it's scandal in the landowner's response to one who objects to this practice of equal pay for unequal work. The landowner says, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? People in that community knew about this last group and knew why they had not been hired all day. They're not worth hiring. 
But the determining factor in the story is not the hours worked or the wages earned or who deserves them and who doesn't. The determining factor is the landowner's generosity. We like to think God's love and grace should be for anyone. But if we're honest, we all make exceptions. Some people don't deserve to be valued or honored in this way. Just ask the elder brother in the prodigal son story. He was appalled by the actions of his father who welcomes home his wayward brother with love and generosity. From his point of view, his younger brother made a choice. He had wished his father dead, he had squandered his inheritance, and he had brought shame on his family. So let him suffer the consequences. He's made his bed, let him lie in it. By comparison, and ah, there's always the rub. The comparison tells the truth. By comparison, the elder brother deserves his father's love and favor. Now, most of us are like him. We earn our way and try not to put our lives at risk. We live in such a way as to deserve God's love attention, and generosity. However, it's not generosity if what we have coming to us is owed to us. Nor is it grace when we as the recipient have something to do with the gift. It's this indiscriminate quality of grace Seeing God's love given freely of no charge, no strings attached to people of questionable character and value that goes against every instinct of our humanity. We balk at the fact that we ourselves have bring nothing except our need to this relationship. By instinct, we feel we must do something in order to be accepted. Something in us is of value and worth and and is affirmed and acknowledged. Grace is unsettling in every aspect. To be transformed by it, you have to be a at a place in your life where you need it and you can't live without it. Who wants to be there? We prefer gifts given in our honor or as some form of recognition, something we've had something to do with. But grace comes outside us and in spite of us. It derives from God's goodness, not ours. What we do, either to our credit or to our discredit, does not affect the giving of God's grace. It's based entirely on what God has done for us. Last week, Brenna spoke of sin and that there's no part of our life that is untouched by it. It affects everything and everyone. 
If sin is our doing, then grace is God's doing, or rather, God's undoing of our sin, freely given to redeem everything and everyone. Now, what we do may affect our ability to receive God's gift, but only by way of interfering with our willingness. Even more telling is when grace is shown to someone we think otherwise uh, disreputable, undeserving. Most of us will have one of either two reactions. Either we're humbled and stirred by the shocking nature of grace's ability to generate hope and possibility for someone who, who's empty of it. Or we will find the offer of God's grace to such a person insulting our sensibilities. Both of these responses are captured in a scene from a movie made in 1994 entitled The War. The protagonist is a teenage boy named Stewart who lives among the rural, rural poor of Mississippi. He lives there with his Vietnam veteran father, his mother, and sister. Now, if growing up wasn't hard enough, living next door are five of the meanest kids you would ever want to avoid. The Lipneckies live without a mother and an inattentive father. Stuart sees himself as the protector and defender of his sister and her playmates against these older and tougher Lipnickies. Stuart's father is constantly encouraging his son to get along with them. But Stuart insists it's a matter of survival and self-defense that makes him hate them so. On one occasion, at a local fair, Stuart is surrounded by the four brothers who use him as a punching bag until his dad shows up, causing them to scatter. Stuart and his dad are about to return home with two sticks of cotton candy for Stuart's mom and sister. But as they're driving away, his dad stops the car near two of the Lipnecki kids and he walks over to them with the cotton candy. Inside the car, Stuart is stunned as he witnesses his father give away such a coveted treat. By the time his dad returns to the car, he is incensed with hurt and anger. I hope you know them as the kids that just beat me up. I know who they are, son. Then why did you give them mom and Liddy's cotton candy? Because they look like they haven't been given nothing in a long time. Such acts of grace either stir our hearts or infuriate us. 
We live in a culture and a world that is starved for grace. People asking the question, am I good enough? Do I have your approval? Do I make you proud? Do I give you cause to love me? No one dare ask them out loud for fear that the answer they expect is the one they'll receive. How is it that the church that has the greatest gift to offer the world the gift of God's grace, evident in Jesus, how is it that we are so bad at offering this gift? That we qualify it, that we dole it out, that we measure it, that we quantify it. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey describes it this way. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. You have to really think about that. Because it affects how you live. There's no amount of spiritual exercises, no amount of good works, there's no amount of financial sacrifice Nothing can increase God's love for you. Then he says, there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. I bet you can think of something. If not with respect to yourself, certainly with respect to someone else who keeps doing the same thing over and over again, who values their life so little that they, they wreak havoc and harm on themselves and everyone around them. But no amount of pride, no amount of criticism of others, no sexual infidelity, not even murder can suspend God's love for you. Either we believe that or we don't. And if we believe that, it affects everything. It certainly affects how we live and how we bear God's message to this world. Now, I know many of you are thinking, yeah, but make sure you say the rest of the story, that that it's not just grace given without any expectation that there'll be a change or some transformation that somehow will be different because of it. But we tend to focus more on that than we do on the giving of it in the first place, the generosity, the fact that it's squandered on people so readily, so easily. Is it possible that the grace we convey to the world 
is something God himself would not recognize. Not too long ago, I was listening to Christian radio, which I don't do very much of. Think of me what you will because of that statement, but... Largely, it's the things that get said in between the songs that disturb me the most. And one person was talking about this group of people that clearly the implication is they are sinners, I am not. And I thought to myself, not again, not one more time that the world hears that we're somehow better, that we're, we somehow have God's favor and God's approval, but you don't. We're like, we're like uh, people attending a high school football game who says, we've got God on our side, how about you to the other side? When was the last time we've heard someone say, I am a sinner saved by grace? We want to talk about being saved by grace. We want to talk about God being on our side. But are we willing to admit that it's our need? It is our humility It is our recognition that we have nothing to do with it unless God helps us. Well, fortunately for us who attend this hour, this is a constant reminder of God's grace. This meal in which Jesus gives his life we say it's free of charge to receive God's grace, but we know it cost God something. So we speak of this meal as a Eucharist, a meal of thanksgiving, of giving thanks, of showing gratitude for who we are in God. Whenever we can think of something when we say there's nothing we can do that will make God love us more, there's nothing we can do that will make God love us less. Whenever something comes to mind, we need to be reminded of who God is and what God does. On the night 